Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up at your door in as little as two days. Then, when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out for more new-to-you styles. Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years. But if I want to try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. Rather than going to the mall for hours and spending too much money on pieces I might not like, Armoire allows me to rent high-quality designer clothing for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy. Of course, all of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off of their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murder in the rain. That's A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murder in the rain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. This is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Sila is a city that is often described as a picturesque, tight-knit community located in the Yakima Valley of central Washington. It's not the kind of place where really bad things happen, or so most of us think of the small, idyllic towns that we hail from. But Sila does sound fabulous. With just over 8,000 people, it's easy to imagine tight-knit is an accurate description. In fact, in the early 2000s, Sela was in the media showing us just how close the community actually was. A local couple, Doug and Bronwyn Mayo, discovered the fossil of a mammoth on their property and turned it into an opportunity to inspire kids in their community to embrace learning and the sciences. The Wanas Mammoth Foundation was created to protect the mammoth site and provide education on archaeology, paleontology, and geology. While the excavation was in progress, they even asked local kids to participate in a mammoth naming contest, and the winning name was Colombo. We often talk about cities where cases take place and what they're known for, like Portland, a city with a thousand nicknames, and each is very descriptive, from things like our coffee to our bridges. Sela has one unique nickname, and it doesn't have to do with mammoths. It has to do with what they're primarily known for. Sela is known as the apple juice capital of the world. Wow. Yeah, right? 
There are a number of companies who set up shop nearby to benefit from the Wanas Valley, a perfect location for growing and processing apples. And if your city's claim to fame is growing apples, manufacturing apple juice, and putting it into cute little juice boxes, how bad could it really get crime-wise? And you have a mammoth named Columbo. In the state of Washington, your chances of being a victim of violent crime are 1 in 298, according to NeighborhoodScout.com. But if you're in Sela, that rate is much less at 1 in 1,173. It's rare to find cities like this, but there are years when there is quite literally no violent crime in the area. This has, of course, ebbed and flowed over the years, but something like murder rarely happens there. In August of 1997, the quaint little city of Sela, Washington, was shocked to learn that one of their own, Carolyn Clift, was found dead inside her own residence, the victim of a particularly brutal stabbing. Despite multiple eyewitnesses who had heard a disturbance and even glimpsed a potential suspect fleeing the scene, the investigation languished into a cold case. However, a breakthrough occurred providing crucial information that would ultimately crack the case wide open. 70-year-old Lila Powell lived in Sela Square, a small apartment complex featuring apartments for low-income and elderly people in Sela, Washington. Folks in the community were friendly, in fact, a few of the women living in the townhouses were actually friends, choosing to spend time with each other. That's shocking with neighbors. Just kidding. No, it's true. At around 11.20 p.m. on the night of August 28, 1997, Lila was startled by a scream coming from one of the apartments next door. She knew who lived there. It was her friend, 56-year-old Carolyn Clift. Carolyn was quite close with her Sela neighbors, before moving there, she had made a living in Alaska as a real estate agent. She raised two children, made her own clothes, did the whole perfect mom thing for years. Once her children had grown, she divorced her husband and moved to Sela. She was extremely likable as she was outgoing, friendly, and made donations to her community on a regular basis. People described her as essentially leaving every conversation with a stranger as friends. So it's no surprise that when Lila heard Carolyn scream, she rushed outside to Carolyn's door to offer her assistance. The screen door was closed, but the inside door was left open, and Lila was able to see through the screen and into the apartment, and what she saw scared her. There, standing in Carolyn's living room, was a man, but she could only see him in silhouette due to the very low light of a nearby lamp. When the man noticed he had an audience, he reached over and turned the lamp off, leaving the apartment and himself shrouded in darkness. Lila ran to another friend's door, Maxine Jones, so she could call the police. The pair of women watched as the now shirtless man ran through Carolyn's front door and out into the night. His shirt had been lifted up and over his head, obscuring his face from their view as he ran by. They watched on as he ran out of the complex and into the night. Both of them noted that he had a very hairy chest and that he climbed into a dark-colored truck that neither of them had seen before. Before long, officers were on the scene. Officer Bill Rodriguez was the first to enter Carolyn's home. It was completely dark, and as he carefully made his way through the apartment, he found Carolyn. She was dead, lying completely nude on her right side on the floor of her living room, in a pool of her own blood. 
Carolyn had multiple stab wounds, including two to her left side near her ribs and two in the center of her back, which initially appeared as a single stab wound. But during the autopsy, it was discovered to be two, the second of which went right through the first and was very violent, severing her spine. The pathologist later described that the second stab wound to the back was so violent that someone likely stabbed her and then hit the knife or pounded it with another object to force it through her spine. As investigators made their way through her home looking for evidence, they discovered a hammer lying on the drying rack next to the sink. They believe that's what the man likely used to force the knife through her spine. Unfortunately, no knife was recovered from Carolyn's home. As they processed Carolyn's body, they took several scrapings from under her fingernails because she showed signs of having fought back against her attacker. It appeared Carolyn had fought as hard as she could, and there was potentially DNA evidence to be found under her nails. Unfortunately, once they tested it, the DNA came back inconclusive. Investigators believe that the attack against Carolyn was likely sexually motivated due to her body being found nude. They also believe that this wasn't just some random intruder and that Carolyn likely knew her attacker. There was no evidence of forced entry. In fact, one of her neighbors had heard a knock and giggling prior to the attack, as if Carolyn opened the door for someone she knew and was possibly even flirting with them earlier in the night. Though they were unable to find the official murder weapon on the premises, investigators did discover two Marlboro cigarette butts on the carpet. This was of great interest because it was well known from the interviews with her friends and family that Carolyn did not smoke. She didn't even have an ashtray in her home for guests, so it's unlikely she ever even allowed smoking in her home. The cigarette butts were also unique as they had been field stripped. Field stripping is a technique that's commonly used by soldiers when putting out their cigarettes. The most basic version of field stripping entails removing the hot ashes from the cigarette before you put it out. Now, this is done for a couple of reasons. One, to avoid accidentally starting a fire in the vicinity. And two, to avoid leaving a sign that you were in the area recently. So a warm butt with a cherry would allow your enemies to Mm -hmm. know that you were nearby Mm -hmm. recently. I feel like I've seen that in movies where they... Maybe lick their fingies a little and mm-hmm. then and put it, it out. out. Yeah. Yeah. And there is uh, a few different ways you can do it. And, and most of the time they would actually take the butts with them and not leave them right. behind. But the field stripping itself is just the removing of the ashes before you dispose it. Interesting. On the floor near the cigarette butts was an empty box of Marlboro's. The pack was also telling as it had a distinctive stamp on it the Yakima Nation stamp, indicating that the cigarettes were purchased on the Yakima Reservation. Police were able to then track down where the pack was purchased to a store called the Little Brown Smoke Shack. Surprisingly, that lead didn't go anywhere. Hmm. It's really disappointing. You'd think that maybe the clerk would remember someone military or a non-Native person, but there was just a lot of people buying cigarettes there. While police were deep into their investigation, looking into all of the clues collected at the murder scene and reviewing all of the documented witness testimony, they began to develop a profile of Carolyn's killer. They believed the man was Caucasian and was familiar to Carolyn. He was likely in his 50s, standing at a height of around six feet tall. He would have had a background in the military, would be known to smoke, and would drive a pickup truck, and as we know, would also be very hairy. 
Oh, right. Oof. After speaking to Carolyn's friends and neighbors, they learned that she had a boyfriend named Taylor whom she was planning to see the night she was murdered. Taylor's description given to them from the neighbors was very similar to the profile they had compiled of her killer. Taylor was ex-military and served in Vietnam, making him roughly 40 to 50 years old. He was known to drive a truck and he was a smoker. Thanks to Carolyn's address book she kept in her house, investigators were able to track down Taylor very quickly. Taylor lived in Everett, Washington, two hours from where Carolyn lived. And as police pulled up to his house, they saw his pickup truck parked right outside. This, of course, piqued their interest. Taylor answered the door shirtless in all of his hairy glory. And officers made a note as that was something witnesses described seeing when the likely murderer fled the scene. When asked, he claimed he had no idea that Carolyn was murdered, and police requested that Taylor come to the police department for questioning. Taylor had a way about him, or a look, if you will. Detectives said he would basically drill a hole through them with his eyes, making them feel uncomfortable to even be in the same room with him. When asked about his smoking habit, Taylor claimed to have stopped smoking three weeks prior to the night of Carolyn's murder and that his previous brand of choice was Winston's. Even though he had looks that could kill, he cooperated in the questioning. He told police he dated Carolyn on and off for four years, but they had an open relationship and that Carolyn had been with other men. He confirmed he was supposed to have a date with her that night, but he wasn't feeling well, so he stayed home. This was also corroborated by his roommate, who was home and had seen him in his bed at 3 a.m. Doing some quick detective math, they noted that this gave a gap of six hours where Taylor could have possibly driven to Carolyn's, murdered her, and then driven home so that his roommate saw him in bed. While they were still at Taylor's home, investigators decided to take a quick little peek into his truck. There, inside, they found an empty Marlboro cigarette pack, (gasps) which directly conflicted with what he had previously told police Mm -hmm. about smoking a different brand. This solidified Taylor as the main person of interest in Carolyn's murder case. Unfortunately, everything was circumstantial. There was nothing left at the crime scene that officially linked Taylor to her murder. They needed more, perhaps a witness who could tie Taylor to Cela Washington on the night Carolyn was murdered. Several tips bubbled up. A woman working at a local liquor store said she saw Carolyn between 6 and 7 p.m. that night. Carolyn had purchased some whiskey and mentioned to her that she was on her way home because she was having a friend over for dinner. The clerk then saw her go outside and begin chatting to a man in the parking lot. The woman working recognized him as a man named Michael. Michael was a local bartender who police were able to track down. He told them he had never met Carolyn before that day in the parking lot outside the liquor store, but that she had asked him for a ride and he obliged. He claimed to have dropped her on the sidewalk outside of the apartments where she lived. Michael, like Taylor, was also a smoker. He smoked Marlboro cigarettes. But one of them is actively lying about it. Michael's car, however, was not a dark truck. He drove a white sedan, and he had an alibi for the night of her murder. 
he had been over at a friend's house until around 10 p.m. Then he went home where he watched TV with his roommate, Frank. Like Taylor, there was no evidence from the crime scene that linked Carolyn's murder to Michael. And before long, they ran out of leads and the case went cold. Years went by and eventually Carolyn's parents had had enough of the lack of movement in their daughter's case. So they hatched a plan to bring her back into the spotlight. Her father pushed and pushed so he could have a feature story written about her in the local newspaper for the 10-year anniversary of her murder. Once the piece was published, people took notice. A new witness, a man named Cecil Tony, came forward with a massive tip. The witness had been driving between 11 p.m. and 12 a.m. near Carolyn's apartments on the night she was murdered. As he drove by, he saw two men duck behind a parked car as his headlights passed over them. Before they ducked, they were clearly visible, and he happened to know who they were. (sighs) Michael Gorski, the bartender the liquor store clerk had seen talking to Carolyn in the parking lot in the evening before her murder, and his roommate, Frank Brignone, the very same Frank that corroborated Michael's whereabouts 10 years prior. Now, as we know, one of the benefits of looking at a case years later is the advancements made in technology and forensic science. When the case was originally being investigated, Michael Gorski had hair and blood samples taken because he was considered a possible person Mm. of interest. Now, at the time, there wasn't much they could do with that. But now, 10 years later, there was. Authorities went hunting for DNA on the cigarette butts found in Carolyn's house. Eventually, the DNA found on the butts were an exact match to Michael Gorski. Michael and Carolyn had known each other. According to Michael, he had only just met her that day and he had given her a ride home and dropped her off on the sidewalk, claiming that he had never been in her house. But with this DNA match, they could place him in her home. Mm -hmm. He was lying that whole time. Now, just because they had a match and could place him in her home didn't mean this would be an open and shut case for murder. They continued to search the previously collected evidence. One piece of evidence stuck out in the detectives' minds, a pair of eyeglasses left near the hammer drying next to the sink. Carolyn Clift didn't wear glasses. They believed that the glasses would have belonged to her killer. So they began looking for evidence that Michael was the owner of the glasses, and they were able to confirm this by looking at his old driver's license photo in which he wore the very same pair of glasses found at the crime scene. So they don't just like get rid of those pictures, even if you get a new license. Right. Now, to put the final nail in the coffin for him, so to speak, Gorski's DNA was found in one more place in that apartment under Carolyn's nails from when she fought off her attacker. Now that they had a sufficient amount of physical evidence, authorities felt confident that they could build a strong case. They quickly moved to arrest Michael Gorski on July 12, 2011. The very next day, they arrested Frank Brignone. In a tried-and-true police tactic, one straight out of the movies, they pulled the wool over Frank's eyes and told him that his old buddy Michael pinned the murder on him. And that's, of course, a surefire way to get someone to talk. (laughs) The floodgates opened and Frank said, I'm not shocked that my friend blamed me for the murder, if I'm honest, which is always like, whoa, I would hope my friends wouldn't do that. Good friendship. 
Yeah, nice. Real great friends. <laughs> he went on to tell police what actually happened, at least according to him. Yeah. He told them that they both knew Carolyn. He said that after Michael Gorski drove her home from the liquor store, Michael met up with Frank at the Wagon Wheel Bar. Frank went on to say that Michael told him he wanted to go back to Carolyn's home. Frank then drove Michael to her apartment in Frank's blue pickup truck. Both men were warmly greeted by Carolyn at the door, who was wearing a bathrobe at the time. Frank claimed that Michael Gorski quickly started making a move on Carolyn right there in front of him, and it was clearly unwanted. Michael then forcibly removed her robe, leaving her naked in front of both of them. He then began pushing Carolyn, eventually pushing her so hard that she fell to the floor. Now, while Frank described Michael pushing Carolyn to the floor, he made a stabbing motion with his hands. Detectives picked up on this and jumped into action by seizing the opportunity to get Frank to tell them more than he intended to. His actions of acting out what happened told more of the story than what I think he was actually saying. So while he was saying one thing, his body was acting out another, and they encouraged him to keep going, and he fully acted out Michael stabbing Carolyn. Jeez. Eventually, police learned from Brignone that Gorski had pushed Carolyn towards him, and Brignone pushed her back to Gorski. Then Brignone claimed that Gorski pulled out a rod or a knife that he described as, quote, a big, big, long, long thing, but I couldn't tell exactly what it looked like or what the handle looked like or anything. It was just a big, long thing. Carolyn then fell to her knees and Brignone tried to catch her but missed and she fell onto the floor. That's when he saw blood. She then reached up and grabbed his shoulder, which scared him, and he said he backed up and told Gorski he was leaving. After he went outside, Gorski eventually followed him out. Brignone claimed that he never saw Gorski stab her a second time and that he never saw a hammer. According to him, he had been in his truck waiting for Gorski to come out and leave with him, which he claimed was about five minutes later. Now, I should note here that nobody believed that Brignone was merely a watcher. Mm. Detectives believed he was actively involved in the murder, despite the lack of any DNA being found that belonged to him. His statements, paired with the evidence and eyewitness accounts, made everyone feel confident that they could go to trial with both men and get them both convicted of second-degree murder. And they were. They both went to trial, a joint trial, but each of them opted for, you know, their own choose-your-own-adventure of mm. sorts. Michael Gorski chose a trial by jury. Whereas Frank chose to ditch the peers and wanted a judge only. So it was the same trial. And they were at the same time? Right. That's interesting. And I don't was, know that I've ever heard of that. What was really interesting is they had all this audio from Brignone's um, testimony that mm -hmm. the jury never heard because it had nothing to do with Michael Gorski. Uh, so, I mean, it did, but right, I, right, I think right. the way they planned their prosecution, it really didn't matter. Right. Now, I think Frank probably went that way in the hopes that they would have different outcomes or whatever but yeah. the cases were strong and uh unfortunately they were both found guilty or fortunately fortunately for us <laughs> unfortunately for him on february 11th 2013 michael gorski was found guilty of second degree murder just days later frank brignone was also found guilty of second degree murder both men received 224 months for the second degree murder charge plus another 24 months for having a deadly weapon at the time, even though we never found the weapon. 
Hmm. On January 22nd, 2018, Frank Brignone died in prison at the age of 64 years old. Michael Gorski is 73 and living in the Stafford Creek Correction Center in Aberdeen, Washington. Sadly, Carolyn's parents didn't get to see the justice they fought so hard for. By the time the trial rolled around, her mother had passed away and her father had severe Alzheimer's and didn't understand that the case was finally closed. But her siblings and her children would be able to see her case finally closed and justice finally be served. Nice. That reminds me of just we've talked about this before, how people have said I've had people say to me, like, why cover these cases or why do True Crime Tuesday? That case is from like 40 years ago. Yeah, this is why. This is why. They eventually get closed when the right person comes forward. And, you know, why he never came forward is he was under the impression it was salt. So there was like a a misconception or like, you know, word of mouth in a small town that, oh, we know who did it. It's closed or or we're working on it. So we don't need your help. Kind of a thing. The everyday person if it's not talked about in the media, they mm-hmm. just assume it's done. Yeah. And he didn't know. And then when he saw that article come out, he's like, oh, shit. Yeah. I actually saw something. Wow. That's awesome. Good for them coming forward, literally solving a murder case. Yeah. Now, I mentioned violent crime was rare in Sela, but reviewing their crime data, I could see that there is a murder every few years there. But one of them really stood out to me because it had ties to Carolyn's case in an odd way. Hmm. On September 6th, 1975, a man named Everett Fretland was shot and killed in Sela. Now, this happened in the back room of the Wagon Wheel Bar and Restaurant. Now, you might have remembered I mentioned that earlier. That is the same Wagon Wheel where Brignone and Gorski had met up the night of Carolyn's murder and went back to her place. That's also where they met her. So that's a very popular restaurant and bar that they frequented Hmm. and they all got to know each other and were probably bar friends, you know, the type. Mm -hmm. Well, Everett Fretland was the previous owner of that bar, and it was one of three he owned in the Sela and Yakima area. About a month prior to his murder in the wagon wheel, a fire was set to one of his other businesses, making it seem pretty obvious to police that he was being targeted by someone. Mm. Now, it wasn't until 2006 that a task force was put together to look at unsolved homicides because even though they had leads back then, they never did solve his case. So they got that team together to look at some unsolved homicides. One of them may have been Carolyn's for all we know. And they eventually looked back at witness testimony and re-ran DNA that had been collected and got someone. They got a culprit named Gary Isaacs. And it turned out he didn't set the fire Um, But one of his friends was hurt in that fire and the murder was retaliation for Fretland never like doing anything about it. So I just I found that interesting that it was like tied to that case in a little way. And Mm -hmm. in a small town that claims to have little murder, there was a a suicide homicide situation in 2020. There have been a couple of murders throughout the years, but it is relatively a a low crime place. Yeah. Yeah, just a little place where you pick your apples and right. make your juice. That's fun. I didn't know we were so close to the apple juice capital of the world. I know. I drive near there a lot. Wow. In fact, I'll be near there today. Grab me some juice. <laughs> I won't have time. They're probably oh. closed. It's Sunday. Mm-hmm. 
win win ass is what the hell they say online and I don't believe oh, them. Yeah. I tried to find that one. Win ass, I think sounds the best. Instead of win ass. Yeah, I'm gonna say win ass. Hike me up, please, sir. Blessed, blessed me in the holes. Located in the Yakima. Oh my god. I read through this twice. <laughs> Fuck. Inside her own <laughs> wasn't just some rander in- <laughs> you're a real rander <laughs> she didn't even have a cigarette tray in her is that what it's called an ashtray ashtray yeah. that's what i meant i knew i didn't know the word i was real canadian of you <laughs> i know on the floor near the cigarette butts was an empty box of marlboro oh god i fucking the knew. worst word i knew this would happen on the floor near the cigarette butts was an empty box of Mar Mar oh my god Marlboros Marl It's the worst name. I gotta put the I've I have to put spaces in, in them because it's so fucking annoying. Marlboros Mar Marlboros, and I say it at least two more times. <laughs> I swear to God, I was cursing it this morning. Was an empty box of Mar of Marlboros. Of Marlboros. <laughs> That's fine. We'll shove it in there. While police were deep into the Starting over. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written, hosted, and edited by Josh McCullough, Emily Rowney, and Alicia Holland. Feel free to email us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. For as little as a dollar a month, you can subscribe on Patreon to get exclusive access to ad-free and older episodes. For only $5, you can access Patreon-exclusive episodes and content. For more of us, be sure to follow on all the socials, listen to Josh and Alicia on their other show, Always Be My Sisters, and follow Emily on TikTok at M underscore Murder in the Rain. And suck my balls. <laughs>